Welcome, and we're doing a special on-the-road podcast today. So with us is the wonderful and talented Mr. Jeff LaRue. Uh, welcome, Jeff. Thank you. You make me, you make me sound so wonderful well, and talented. Because you are wonderful <laughs> and talented. Thank you. And uh, I appreciate you taking some time out of lunch to sit down and chat with us for a little bit. Um, we're live, well, not live from when, as you're listening to this, but we're, we are live um, and we're recording this from the Michigan Joint Educational Conference, the MIJC. So I uh, appreciate time taken out of your lunch. And um, those of you probably already know a little bit about Jeff LaRue, but you want to give us just a quick background? Oh, okay. Um, uh, Jeff, the Reader's Digest version of Jeff LaRue. Um, I, started, I started middle school, really, in St. Louis, Missouri, in a suburb. Um, I was in a school that was recognized for having good middle school practices, um, had wonderful administrators, and they both left one year, and we had administrators who didn't really know middle school. Uh, so at that point, I thought, oh, my God, I could do a better job than they could. So I went back to college to get my master's degree in administration. Um, I hope they're not listening to this. <laughs> uh, and uh, started uh, middle school administration in East Jordan, Michigan, and then Moved to Monroe, Hendrick Middle School. Uh, our school was closed due to budget cuts, and now I'm at Dundee Middle School. Brief history. Brief history. Appreciate that. Um, and you're also involved with NMSA as well. I and am. Mamsie is. And Mamsie. Is. I like I like getting staff involved in professional organizations and middle school uh, professional development. So I was. I am currently the past president of Mamsie, the Michigan Association of and I am on the board of the National Middle School Association, which is cool because people who like to talk about middle school come from all over the country mm-hmm. to um, meet and discuss how to support middle school, middle level education. Yeah, I think that's probably an important distinction right now: middle school versus middle level. Right there, there is um, some talk about what what is right: middle grades, middle level. The problem with term middle school is that sometimes you'll have a building that says they're a middle school. It'll have the name plastered on the building, but what's happening inside is not middle level teaching or middle level practice. And so um, I think that it's kind, of, it's kind of like looking inside the person, what's really inside of the person, not just on the exterior. Yeah. What are some of the main cores of a middle level? Good middle school, or however okay. you want me to phrase sure. the question. <laughs> we understand the same language. Uh, I think that the foundation for um, middle level philosophy would be teaming. You have teachers that share um, groups of kids. It would be nice if their rooms were by each other, their kids' lockers were by the rooms. Um, and if you have that kind of foundation, then you're ready to build up. And when I say build up, I mean you work toward things like interdisciplinary teaching where teachers can. Um, for the same, if they have the same planning period, whether it's a team planning period or just a common planning period, they can work on um, sharing their curriculum map for the year and making adjustments so that they can be teaching the same kind of topics at the same time of the year, uh, which really benefits the students, I think, when they see that we know that the things that we teach in our room go beyond our classroom to other subject areas. Beyond 
um, interdisciplinary teaching, I would say that middle, good middle schools should have an exploratory component so that kids are able to explore different ideas, different topics. Um, and that can take two different forms. One would be during an exploratory period. And elementary people would call that specials, and I think high school people would call them electives. Uh, and, and our term is exploratories, and it's nice if you can get different exploratories in different grades so that you don't have the same exploratories every year taught by, not taught by, but um, PE is a, it's a typical one that's good, and, and you can change the curriculum so you're not getting the same PE, but if there were different topics um, that maybe were inserted in different years, I think that's a nice rich exploratory curriculum. Another venue for exploratory classes that I like to do what we call co-curricular classes, where people in the building teach something they're passionate about just for a week. It's a mini exploratory class. Um, and that ranges by what people are interested in. So I've seen um, people do foreign languages or some kind of home crafts, scrapbooking or knitting, um, puzzle code. Um, I had somebody this year that did geocaching. It, it, things that people would like to pass on, but you're not going to have a whole class or a whole lesson for that class. <clears throat> and I'd say um, at the other end of the middle school philosophy um, spectrum, you'd have advisory programs, which I think are the most important and also the most difficult piece of middle school philosophy to implement. And the advisory programs are basically, if you're not familiar with the term, um, you take the old form of a homeroom, kind of organization, but you don't do homeroom things. It's more along the lines of mentorship, of team building, um, cooperating and relationship building, and I like to call it service type, because it's super mm -hmm. uh, goal-centered. So <coughs> in a, probably a four-minute Reader's Digest version, that's my uh, idea <laughs> about middle school philosophy. All right, let's, so let's, let's pick apart a couple of those things. You sure. talked about the exploratory classes mm -hmm. and doing those at a week at a time. Um, how, how do you, as a, as a principal, because John's behind the board, so you get the principal version instead Fine. of the teacher questions. As a principal, how is it that you schedule schedule those kinds of things in? The co-curricular classes that happen for a week at a time? Yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> because I'm in a, I was in a new school this year, and they hadn't done that before, I introduced it this asked the staff at a staff meeting to write down on a piece of paper three things that they were passionate about, that they liked to do. And I didn't, that was all I told them. I didn't give them a reason why I was asking them. So after they had their three things, or two, you know, some people are overachievers, uh, five, and <laughs> some people only had two. But a after they had their list um, created, I said, now, now I'd like you to go back and look at your list and see if there's anything on the list that you would like to teach your students, something that you are able to teach to our students in our building. And whichever one you think on the list is your favorite one that you think you could teach, circle. I gave them a little bit more time to process that. And then I explained to them that what I was after would be one week of them sharing their passion with students in our building. Not necessarily the kids on their teams, anybody Excuse me. Anybody that would share that passion with them. So I explained that students would then sign up for five classes. Of all the classes we offered, they would sign up for five. And it would be school-wide, so they could end up with eighth graders. 
we have a 5-8 basis. So they could end up as fifth graders and eighth graders in the same class. But the students that would be assigned to their class would be students who chose to be there, just like they chose to teach that class. Mm -hmm. And um, we had approximately 40 classes that we offered. I had people from the community come in and supplement our offerings. It was it went really well. And because it went well the first time, I gave a little survey about how do you think it went, what was the best thing, what was the worst thing, what would we improve on. And, um, based on the survey, I could tell that they were ready to do it again. So we did it again. We did it twice this year. We did it once around Christmas time and once in the spring. Okay. So it was kind of a, not a formal schedule in terms of you decided in summertime this is what we're going to do, but rather just a, this hour the whole school is going to switch over to right. here. And were there, is, again, you get the principal questions. Sure. <laughs> um, were there, are there issues as far as attendance goes? And yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and keeping that, keeping, because all of our, our, our attendance now is electronic right. and plugged in and formatted. Right. There are absolutely attendance issues because um, if you're in an attendance audit, you have to prove that you have students in attendance. So um, there, there are several issues. I should probably go through it from a principal's <laughs> point of view. The one is um, just the time that it takes to schedule every kid by hand right. for a class that will last a week. And what I do uh, typically is I'll take the eighth graders first because I think they're leaving, so they're not going to get as many opportunities. Mm -hmm. So I did the eighth graders, and I did the seventh graders, sixth graders, and fifth graders in that order. And I tried to get their first choice. They gave me five choices. And if I couldn't get their first choice, I'd go their second, third, fourth, or fifth. And explain to them, you could end up with your fifth choice, so put down the five that you want, not the five that your friend wants. Right. And, and for the most part, Every once in a while, you make a mistake because when uh, you copy their handwriting, um, it's misread. <laughs> so as far as scheduling, it's, it's, it's time-consuming. I have to start about five weeks before the actual week that we're going to do it because I have enough time mm -hmm. to um, catch up on kids that are missing, pro process the scheduling, and then get back to teachers and say, this is how many kids you will have in your class, so this is how much um, you can prepare for um, and each class was limited to 20 kids, so that if you have something that, um, if you have a topic that is intensive, like scrapping, scrapbooking would be difficult for a big class of 30. So every class is limited to 20 kids. We all share the wealth, and it all happens, as you said, at the same period of the day. So um, it's possible to miss first period on one day, second period on another day, third period on another day, but always have the co-curricular class scheduled at the same time. So there's a little bit of continuity for kids that say, when am I going to that class? Well, it's always at the same time, always on. The attendance um, part um, came into play when we had an attendance audit one year, and they wanted, I don't know if it was during co-curricular week or not, but for some reason the, the attendance auditor asked about how we take attendance and we really didn't. Mm -hmm. So from that point on, we started taking attendance every day in co-curricular. We just make a, an attendance sheet of the students that are assigned to the class, um, and uh, the teacher, uh, Marks, who's absent, signs it every day. So you have the teacher of rec record for the weekend in the class signing, and then we collect the papers and store the papers. 
And if an auditor comes in, we have proof that he was doing it. Okay. Uh, and what did, how did the, the kids react to that week? They start asking about three weeks before. Is that class coming? Are we starting it tomorrow? So they get excited about it because they've seen the opportunities. And once they fill out their sheets, then they're ready. So um, I like doing it. I like scheduling the week before Christmas break because that's a hectic week. And, mm-hmm. it, and it gives us something to look forward to. And it gives them a reason to be well-behaved and say, if we're doing something different that they mm-hmm. want to do. And I like doing it in May also because then we can go outside. So again, we can have some outside activities. So students, um, there are a handful of students who just don't want to do anything. And um, mm-hmm. I had, I think this year I had two that said, I don't want to sign up because I don't want to do anything. So I said, well, you have to go somewhere. So take a look. And if you don't take a look now, you're going to have to take a look later when there's only a few classes left. So tell me what you want to do on work. Try to accommodate it. How how did, did did the teachers respond to the week, both kind of before and then after the event? I think especially the first one. I was going to say I was going to focus on the first one. I think the first time we did it, there was a little anxiety about how will this work, and we were mixing up grade levels, and we don't usually do that. So it, it was um, it was a requirement to step outside of your comfort level. And as the week went on, and I, everybody taught a co-curricular class, so I didn't go around, I didn't have the opportunity to walk around seeing how classes were going. I taught mm-hmm. one, too. Um, and that's why I did the survey. I wanted to find out what they thought. The surveys were, um, I'd say, 99% positive. And <clears throat> uh, I, so I think that taking that first step allowed us to continue in, in a, a program that appeared to be credible and viable. Um, so I think during the week I had some people saying, oh, I really like this. And I think it was because they were teaching something they were interested in. Yeah. Did you get any response about, um, you know, I've got 540 glicks to teach, and you're, you're yes. taking, uh, <laughs> a, uh, you know, two taking classes, time. five classes five away classes. from me? Yeah. Um, and, and how do you res- <clears throat> how do you respond to that? I, I had somebody that was vocal about that <clears throat> in a meeting, and I said, um, first of all, you'll like it because you're teaching something you want, and secondly, the kids will like it. You'll see. And um, and there was some resistance to that. And I explained privately then to that person that I explained how it fit in with middle school philosophy, part of the exploratory cycle, and. And that's part of, it should be part of our job as middle school educators to guide students towards adulthood. And one way to do that is to have them explore things that we really aren't going to be teaching for a marking period or for a year-long class. So now, did I convince the person? I'm not sure. But they listened, <laughs> and, they, and they were polite, and they went through, and, and they did the co-curricular class. I didn't hear about it again. Terrific. Um, another thing that you mentioned, you mentioned a little bit about advisory, um, and that's usually one of the most popular search terms that we have, and that's certainly some of the feedback that we get is that people are interested in, in, in advisory. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your concept of advisory, um, how you can best in, implement it, um, how you can make it effective and keep it effective, 
um, and include lots of activities. You have three minutes. Go. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, I could talk for just like three hours. I'm just kidding about the three minutes. <laughs> uh, if I miss any, those are all great mm-hmm. topics, and if I miss any of them, I want you to remind me because I'd like to come back to them. Here's my version of what advisory is. I think that advisory, um, first of all, serves as a vehicle to make the school less anonymous, especially if it's a big middle school, because we break down groups into smaller groups and assign adults to the small groups so that kids feel like they have somebody who cares about them. I think advisory, good advisories provide an identity for students in a big building, and it also provides a mentor to guide them through the process of working through all the hormones and all the hoops that we have to jump through as middle school people. So that's my basic philosophy about what, what it is. Some of the goals, I think, of an advisory period would be to um, bring kids together so that they work as a functional group, doing team-building activities, cooperative activities, um, setting goals, talk about making good decisions. Um, I like I said before, I like putting, um, throwing in at least one service project from each advisory group during the year. Uh, and this is a big challenge for people who are, for adults who are used to looking at information and designing lesson plans that share information. So it's, 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 it's a little different way of thinking about how you, how you teach in a school. So let's go to how do you get it started and then how do you keep it going. Um, this year I was able to start all over again, which was weird for me because I haven't done that for about 16 years starting an advisory mm-hmm. program from scratch. There was no advisory in the, in, in the school that I'm working at. So, <clears throat> and I absolutely did not have enough people to run it school-wide. So I picked the incoming class, the fifth grade class, and I saw advisory mm-hmm. as a nice transition for those students mm-hmm. coming to a, a new school. So um, I worked with the fifth grade teachers before school started, and I tried to explain what it would look like to them as somebody who hadn't experienced it before. Uh, I gave them some ideas about how to start the first week of school. And then during the first week, I met with every um, team. I took them outside. We did team activities, uh, team building activities that focused on communication, goal setting, and one other thing that's not coming to mind right now. But anyway, I took them outside for about 90 minutes. It was a nice break from the school. Building. So teachers really didn't have to do an advisory class the first three days. Uh, and then after that, um, I had they had some materials to work on. So it got them through the first two weeks of school, and then I met with them uh, at an after-school meeting. I tried to have um, monthly after-school meetings to give them curriculum or ideas or activities that would last them through the next month. Mm-hmm. So we met in September, October, and November. January, February, and by the time we got to March, um, I think I met with them in March. That was the last time I met with them. They had enough activities and they had a good feel for the program that they said, um, for April we can do something else. So we did a different topic. We can talk about advisory. But at each monthly meeting, I would give them um, some advisory ideas, some activities that I stole from publications. Mm-hmm. and. And they focused on T-building, decision-making, goal-setting, cooperation, 
Um, the first first part of the year was ice breaking activities, uh, and that kept them. There was enough activities there that it would last more than a month. So um, I think part of the way to maintain an advisory program is to focus on professional development, and that's how I look at that. As we're meeting after school, so we can keep the program going. Actually, this year I was declining the program. When I've had advisory programs before that were established, I would try to have uh, staff members either bring in an idea for a staff meeting, something short that they could share with us, or I would lead an activity that might be new or one that we want to review again and talk about how to introduce it, do the activity, here are the rules, and then process it. Uh, how, how do you process this activity with kids? Why are we doing this activity? So that the students see why we're actually playing the game that we're playing, because it's not just recess. I mean, some students misinterpret mm -hmm. advisory as recess or fun time. And advisory is allowed to be fun, but then it's important that you process the fun. Why did we do that? What do you get out of it? So for either new or traditional or uh, uh, well-established programs, I think it's important to keep a focus on what you can do and why we're doing it. And that will keep the program, I think, vibrant. I know there are more questions, but I missed them. Uh, just uh, the, the last part was slightly facetious, but um, a couple of, <laughs> uh, maybe a couple of activities that you particularly like. Oh, yes. We okay. could um, we, we like to be practical for our, our listeners. We'll do it right now. They, they can watch us. <laughs> um, one of my kids' favorites, and this worked in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, was the elbow game, where they stand in a circle it's an activity I like doing at the beginning of the year to get people to learn each other's names. Mm -hmm. And uh, they stand in a circle, they put their elbows, they put their hands on their shoulders so that their elbows are sticking out. And you cross your hands. I don't know if you can picture that or not. Um, and one person is in the middle, like monkey in the middle. Everybody's mm -hmm. standing in a circle around the person in the middle. And the people that are standing in the circle, um, one person will say somebody else's name in the circle. The goal is for the person in the middle to touch that person's elbow. That's the goal. If the person is quick and they know somebody else's name, they redirect the person in the middle by shouting out somebody else's name, like Tom. So then the person in the middle is looking for Tom and wants to touch Tom's elbow. And if they can get to Tom and touch Tom's elbow before Tom redirects them, then Tom is in the middle. If not, if Tom yells, Sharice, then the person in the middle has to find Sharice's elbow. So... When I'm at conferences like this yes. during the school year, that is something that's really popular for my advisory group to do. They like, they, they've always liked to do it, and um, it's a safe thing because they know the rules and know each other. So they go for it. That's yeah, activity. That's, that's, a, that's a good one, and that's also one that we haven't covered on the show. So okay. That's a win-win that's right there. Um, there, are, there are other activities that are um, more involved with more props and they take up a little bit of time. So I, I didn't bring any of those props with me to the show. So. <laughs> um, but I, it is an audio podcast, so we can I, do that. <laughs> I thought it would be fun to do it for people so they could watch us. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Listen to us play this game. Uh, I, I think that when I do activities, if I can find activities that have purposes, that focus around team building, ice-breaking, name, name-learning, goal-setting, take a beach ball and just hit it. Stand in a circle and hit the beach ball and count how many times can we keep the beach ball up in the air. 
characteristics of goal setting. And there are all kinds of um, variants of, of that activity, um, like standing in a certain place, your feet are glued, or your feet are not glued. Um, you stand on carpet squares, and if you, if you miss the beach ball, you take your carpet square away so that there are a diminishing number of carpet squares, and people have to cooperate by joining up in a few um, different, I can call them houses, but they're really just carpet squares. And all kinds of variations you can do with goal setting and team building. And I'm glad that we're recording this so that I can <laughs> go back and use listen. those later. <laughs> they're cool. They're cool things to do, yeah. And actually, kids will come up with, hey, can we try this? One time last year when I was teaching eighth grade, uh, I was doing the beach ball goal setting one day. Um, we were out in the hallway, and kids said, it was right before lunch, can we do this outside the lunchroom so that when we're done, we can just go in? I said, hey, guys, come on. Let's do this. Let's set a goal. And if we meet the goal, we'll take 10 steps in that direction. And we'll set a new goal, and every time we meet our goal, we'll work our way down. Something that I wouldn't have thought of that. What is um, the ideal makeup of an advisory group class? And I'm working real hard not to call it A square because that's what we that's call fine. it. I would understand that. Different schools will call it different things, and if mm -hmm. a school has a theme, they might change the name of advisory to meet the, match the theme of the of the school that year. Let's go back to makeup of an advisory. Uh, when I had, uh, when I was working at a school that had uh, an established program, there were some teachers that liked to let the kids decide who they would like as an advisor. And I think that enhances the relationship building aspect of advisory. There are some adults that were uncomfortable with that and they wanted to assign kids before school ever started. And, and either way is fine because once you have the advisory group, you try to work on building the relationships between you and them and between each of them. So uh, it's possible to have an, a, a wide variety, different kinds of makeups. You could have an all-boy advisory group, an all-girl advisory group, uh, which have been rare for me, but mm -hmm. um, you can focus on different things when that happens. Mm -hmm. I, I think the actual size of an, an advisory group should probably be half the size of a regular class. That's a good goal, I think. So if you have about 30 kids in a classroom, if that's your class average size, then uh, I would look for other adults in the building to assign. Like if you have a four-person team, assign four adults to a four-person team. If you have eight people who are advisors on that team. And then you, you end up with groups that are manageable, and you can achieve the goals that you want to do about relationship building, learning mm -hmm. about each other. So as far as makeup goes, um, Sometimes they're well-rounded with a wide variety of ability students, gender, equal gender, equal racial makeups, and sometimes they're not. And I think whatever you end up with, it's, it's just a group of students, it's a group of people that it's time to start molding into a cohesive group, no matter what you end up with. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about other adults, and mm -hmm. you didn't say teachers. So um, who are some of the other adults that you've used in, in providing that, those advisory activities or classes? Excellent question. I'm glad that you brought that up. I have used every adult in the building with a teaching certificate. So that included the librarian, the counselors, the assistant principal, myself. And before there were stricter no-child-left-behind requirements, I have had people who are not certificated that 
um, were advisors like head head custodians. Mm -hmm. um, when when you're superintendent, um, which was <laughs> difficult. I can imagine. <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to think of. I, I think that's that's most of my experience. But I, I think that now we would run into trouble with um, attendance procedures, legal legal issues. So I haven't really interacted with those people. Yeah, I tried one year to really get my secretary to do one, and I almost had her convinced, and then she kind of backed out on. I had a secretary that loved it, and she got back from a union because they were they were on her like, "What are you doing? We're all gonna have to be spelled." Yeah. Loved it. And what was cool is that I would see she had sixth graders, and for the next two years, those kids would always come in the office just to talk to her. Mm -hmm. They wanted to come and see her. It was very nice. What are you doing interacting with the kids? <laughs> yeah, what do you think this is? A school or something? That's right. Um, okay, so. Um, you talked a little bit about the about the kids scheduling themselves, which choosing their I, advisor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, choosing their advisor, which I think is a powerful piece. Um, and you said there some teachers had some issue with that. Um, yeah. Can you talk just a, just real quickly about um, how it is that you? And I guess that's a more specific question than what I really want to ask is. Um, the people who are the roadblocks are not buying in. Um, are there any tips or tricks to maybe get them to move along the process a little faster? Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> I don't have any tricks or tips. Okay. Every person, you know, every person is different. And so, yes, there, I had to deal with people that were reluctant. And, and what I did, and it may work for you, it may not work for um, you or your listeners, is... I started um, developing staff meetings where I required people to bring their best idea from the last month and share it. Mm -hmm. And then we would come up with a big list of everybody's best ideas. And that was nice because then if you didn't think of one of those, if you had never tried one, you'd have a whole list of cool ideas from other people. And so some of the people who are roadblocks or reluctant look at that and go, oh, well, Maybe I like this one, or maybe I like that one, and then it gives them something of quality to take back to their advisor. So I, I don't know if that's a great answer or not, but I don't have the. If I knew the answer, I'd have my own show. <laughs> I'm looking for the magic bullet. <laughs> right. Something that I would like to add about advisory groups um, is uh, once a well-established advisory program is in place, this is what I found anyway. It, it made my student government almost irrelevant because uh, every group had a voice. And we would meet in grade level meetings, would speak with their adults, their adult advise, advisors. And problems in the school bubbled up through advisories to be addressed that way. And because everybody was doing service projects, that also took the place of some of the um, student government piece of setting up parties. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sitting here saying you should do away with student government. I'm saying that it was a natural, it was a natural um, progression to, to, I guess, incorporate student government into advisory. That's really what I see. That's that's interesting because I've also been trying to build um, student government as well. Just trying to get kids as involved in the school mm -hmm. as as possible because I think that's something that's real important and crucial. 
Um, which leads into our next question, um, which is, what is the what is the most um, important? If you had to if you had to narrow down to one single thing, what is the the keystone of uh, of a good middle level school? I had only one only one one thing. I, I think I would not focus on a program because. That would be the teaming aspect. That's just an organization thing. The key is always the quality of the people that are in the building. It doesn't matter what the building looks like. It doesn't matter if you have the best facilities. It's the quality of the people. And when I say quality, I'm not talking about necessarily they know everything. I'm talking about there's a dedication there to middle-aged, middle-level-aged students so that... Um, if they realize that we're all here on the same page for the same purpose, you could teach in a basement. You could teach in somebody's dark, dirty attic. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the commitment of the people on your staff that's most important, I think. Um, what do you think is the biggest challenge the middle school or middle-level uh, teachers and educators face right now? I think in today's, in today's economy, uh, my guess is that School districts are cutting back on programming of all sorts, K-12. And for us in the middle, it, it means probably losing our team times, if we even have teams times still, our, our dedicated <laughs> team times. Yes. So well, I know that once you lose that, you lose momentum. And when we lost that at, at uh, Cantrick Middle School, we had years' worth of interdisciplinary units and years' worth of relationships between adults and team members that we could coast for a while. We had interdisciplinary units in place. But if you're on the other end where you're working toward developing a better middle school and you don't have all those pieces in place, it's like setting up a 15-foot wall that you have to climb over. So I think if you have to climb over a 15-foot wall, some people might look and go, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that or not. So... One of the biggest challenges that we have is sticking to the middle school philosophy because we know that that's what's best for kids age 10 to 15. And there may be new people coming on board that don't know that, have never experienced it, and as more time passes, it's going to be a greater challenge for us to keep best middle-level middle practices in our, in our schools. Okay. Well, I appreciate you taking the time with us today. I am so happy to be here. <laughs> Finally. Yay. Finally got you, hon. Um, and we'd like you to stop by the middleschoolmatters.com and post a comment. Um, I'm sure I'm sure Jeff will be checking the site as well, and so you can get some, some messages directly to him. Or you can always drop us a, an email at middleschooleducators at gmail.com. We hope to talk to you soon, and until next time, this is Middle School Matters for middle school educators who care.